Section 14 of The Book of Famous Sieges. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The Book of Famous Sieges by Tudor Jenks. Constantinople, about 717 A.D. It is hardly fair to include in a book devoted to the taking of cities an account of the early sieges of Constantinople by the Saracens. In the first place, it was not one siege, but a long series of attacks extending over 44 years, each conducted in the same way and with the same lack of result. In the second place, the city was not then taken, and there is nothing in these attempts of the Saracens to help us in understanding siege methods for the reason that the attack was not carried on in a scientific way, and yet would have been successful had it not been for the use of something new in warfare, or, if not entirely new, new in the way it was employed. The Saracens, in extending their conquests over Africa and Asia, had, for the most part, taken cities by mere force of numbers, and by impetuous attacks which nothing could resist. They fought, as has been so often said, almost with a desire of death, and in the belief that death in battle meant immediate entrance into a heaven of delights. Before approaching Constantinople, they had already taken Damascus and Alexandria, from which many clever engineers had made their escape into the greater and stronger city upon the Bosporus. Either one of these refugees, or, to repeat the commonly accepted story, Callinicus, a Syrian architect coming from Heliopolis, brought to the city the knowledge of the composition of a burning substance that has received a great number of names. Perhaps the best known is Greek fire, but it has also been called wildfire, wet fire, fire rain, and Median fire. Its composition was a secret so well kept that in spite of the various attempts to give its ingredients, we are not certain just what these were. It was a semi-liquid that contained usually sulfur, pitch, nitre, and petroleum, with possibly other explosive compounds. We know that it produced a thick smoke, a light explosion, and a fierce flame that could not be put out with water, but was spread by it, especially by salt water. The only means of extinguishing it seems to have been either vinegar or wet sand. Burning substances had been used in warfare for many ages, being shown even upon the old Assyrian sculptures. They were known to the Chinese, to the Persians, and to the Romans, but at the time of the siege of Constantinople there seems to have been some new and more effective method of preparing the burning liquid, for all the stories of its employment agree that it was terrible and effective in repelling attacks of men, in burning towers and ships, and that it was used in many methods which showed that it was prepared in a number of different forms. Certainly the secret of Greek fire was well kept, and the fire itself kept the city from falling, as others had done, into the hands of the Mohammedans. The methods of the Saracen attack were, as has been said, usually plain assaults, Thus, the city of Damascus, which was taken only about a generation before this attack upon Constantinople, finally fell only after its Roman defenders had been defeated in the open field. The Saracens had again and again attempted to swarm over the walls, but without success, when, to the great joy of the hard-pressed garrison, the Roman general Heraclius brought up an army to the city's relief. 
thus strengthened the garrison threw open the gates and marched forth to drive away their saracen foes who had already begun to retreat the romans followed so closely that they succeeded in capturing the rear guard of the saracen army and their women and children but when the roman general attempted to take possession of these captives one of the saracen women enraged by his insults snatched from the ground the sharp pegs that held down the tents and calling her women around her fought desperately against the roman soldiers while the romans hesitated to slay these women or to attack them the saracens recovering from their first alarm wheeled and rode back attacked the romans unprepared and put them to flight then advanced once more to the walls of damascus where they made a new assault and took the city pursuing and slaying the romans for miles upon the surrounding plains apparently the only difference between the earlier and this last attack was in the fierce bravery of the returning saracens rather than in any new method employed to take the city there was a tradition among the mohammedans that whoever should first succeed in taking constantinople the city of the caesars would not only have all his sins forgiven but would succeed to the heritage of glory handed down by the roman emperors since there had been about the year seven hundred many changes in the imperial throne it was thought that the city would not be likely to offer any serious resistance and on the other hand the saracen empire was at its highest power and its greatest extent reaching from india all along the southern shore of the mediterranean northward into spain where it was bounded only by the atlantic and the mountain heights one historian says it seemed as if this saracen crescent would grow into a full moon covering all europe nowhere had the scimitars of the invaders failed to win them victory against constantinople for the final attempt was led the best army that had ever attacked the christians consisting of eighty thousand fighting men while the caliph awaited the results of the attack of this first force to furnish as many more men as might be required according to finley who wrote the history of the byzantine empire a hundred and eighty thousand men were employed in the expedition in one way and another the saracens captured the city of pergamos then marched to abydos and here having joined their fleet crossed the hellespont and surrounded constantinople toward the land side constantinople was protected by three high and thick walls built higher as they were nearer the city and each so pierced with loopholes that those within could fire upon the assaulting army from several different levels concentrating the fire of a number of lines against the attacking army owing to the heavy fire from these loopholes and from the engines that were set upon the top of the walls every attempt to place ladders against the walls and to climb over them was repulsed with heavy loss and the saracens finally decided that they must blockade the city and if possible starve out the garrison to prevent provisions from being brought in thousands of saracen soldiers were sent to ride over the region to collect forage for the army and to destroy what they did not need for their own use meanwhile the rest encamped behind a strong earthwork which had been protected by a deep ditch in order that they might defend themselves against sallies from the besieged city to blockade the sea-wall the saracens sent their fleet of eighteen hundred vessels and transports to guard the whole line of the coast as a portion of them were entering the bosporus the strong current and a heavy wind threw a number of these ships into confusion when the greeks sending out swift galleys loaded with combustibles succeeded in burning a number of the moslem ships and in driving others ashore enraged by this attack 
the Saracen admiral selected his strongest vessels, and putting in each a hundred Arabs in complete armor, sailed directly up against the sea wall, and by raising ladders attempted to force his way into the city. Here the Saracens met with the terrible Greek fire, poured from cauldrons, thrown from great ladles, shot from war machines. The sticky, burning, explosive liquid set fire to his vessels, burned a number of them, and forced the rest to retreat. No doubt the substance was greatly feared by the Muslims, as it had already been used against them in their earlier siege in 673. To put the story of the siege briefly, we may say that every attempt to approach the walls was defeated, either by storms of missiles or by torrents of Greek fire, and the Saracens were compelled to withdraw to their fortified camp, though they were too obstinate to give up the siege. The caliph, who had promised to send reinforcements, died, and the Saracen army received but few additions. As winter came on, it proved to be most severe, and the country round about was covered deeply with snow. The horses and camels of the Saracens died for want of forage. The soldiers themselves, unprepared for the northern climate, also perished in great numbers, and were soon nearly starved from the difficulty of procuring food. The Constantinople forces, having had ample time to prepare for the siege, were well provisioned and did not suffer. When spring came, two Saracen fleets arrived from Africa and anchored in the bays nearby, but did not dare to approach the walls, for fear of the Greek fire or the fire ships. Many among the crews of these new fleets were Christians, and seeing the weakness of the Saracens, they seized small boats and escaped to Constantinople. These refugees told of the misfortunes of the besiegers, and at once a fleet was sent out from Constantinople, and succeeded in sending fire ships among the enemy's vessels, and also in approaching near enough to shoot Greek fire upon them from tubes set in the prows. Some ships were captured, some driven ashore, others burned. This destroyed all hopes of Muslim success, but not until many of their foraging parties had been captured, and all horses and camels and mules eaten, did the Muslims give up the attempt to take the city. The few ships remaining from their fleet were all that they needed to carry away the remnant of their great army, for out of 180,000 only 30,000 survived. Even after the retreat, their misfortunes did not end. They were caught in a storm while passing through the Grecian archipelago, were attacked by the Greeks of these islands, and at last only five of the Saracen squadron returned to tell the story of the Saracen failure. Finlay, from whose book the facts are taken, ascribes the victory partly to the possession by the Greeks of engines of war far larger and better than those of the Saracens, and not only did these engines throw the usual missiles, but also the terrible Greek fire, to which the defeat of the Saracen fleet was due. The people of Constantinople had been accustomed to the use of Greek fire since about the year 673, or over 40 years, for it was during the siege by the Saracens in that year that Callinicus is said to have told the emperor, Constantine Pogonatus, how to make it. Constantine had used the Greek fire by projecting it from tubes set in the prows of fast galleys, and at a later time not only was it so used, but was projected from small tubes held in the hand, or thrown in jars that would break as they fell. In later times the Greek fire was frequently used against the Saracens, and by some historians it is believed to have been the salvation of Europe from the Mohammedan invaders. 
Europe was contending also against the northern races, who pressed upon their more civilized neighbors to the southward, just as the Saracens were attacking on the eastward and all along the southern shores of the Mediterranean. Out of the great turmoil of races were to come modern European nations. Some idea of the struggle farther north is given by the siege chosen for the next telling, that of the Northmen or Danes in their attempt to take the old city of Paris. The Danes fought for plunder, and though at first they had little skill in war, they learned quickly from their enemies, and thereby became so able in attack and defense that before many centuries they had established themselves firmly in France, England, Russia, and Italy, where they united with the people, and gave strength to the races they overcame. The siege of Paris by the Danes in 885 did not differ in the nature of the operations from sieges three and a half centuries earlier, nor from those more than two centuries later. This long period of more than 500 years saw little or nothing new in the taking of cities or in methods of defense. In every case, the idea of those outside was first to fill up the ditches, and then, by the aid of ladders, to climb over the walls. If they could not do this, they tried to break down the walls with rams, or to bring up great towers, and by means of heavy volleys of darts, arrows, and stones, to drive the defenders from the ramparts so that the walls could be attacked without loss. The usual rams had blunt heads, and by being swung against the walls again and again would shatter them. If, instead of a blunt end, a sharp point was put on the great swinging timber, the engine was called a bore, and was meant to pick out single stones and so bore a hole through the walls. This opening once made could be easily enlarged into a breach. Both of these machines had to be protected by heavy sheds of timbers covered by rawhides, as burning pitch or oil and heavy stones were showered upon them from the walls as soon as they were brought near enough to reach the stonework. They also had to be guarded, so that they could not be attacked by parties of soldiers sent out or lowered from the walls to destroy them. The defenders could protect the walls either by putting great mattresses or wooden guards between the ram head and the stone, or by catching the rams in looped chains or ropes or in forked timbers. The ram was sometimes broken from its fastenings by heavy timbers dropped upon it, but in all there was nothing new as we know. The sharp-pointed bores were lighter than the rams, and so could be more easily moved. They were called by a number of fancy names, of which Charles Oman gives a few. Thus, in Latin, and most of the siege stories of this time are in Latin, we find the boar called a musculus, or little mouse, because it gnawed a hole a caddis, or cat, because it clawed out stones, a vulpus, or fox, because it burrowed, and a scrofa, or sus, that is, a sow or a hog, because it rooted its way through the stonework. Mining was very common, and has always been carried on in much the same way. Before gunpowder, mining was followed by filling up the hole under the wall or tower with timbers and rubbish. When these were burned, the ground above caved in. To guard against mining, those inside had to find the mine, dig out to meet it, drive out the enemy's miners, and fill up the hole. Scaling ladders were made in every form, of wood, of rope, of iron. Though men trying to climb these could easily be thrown down, yet when defenders were few and ladders were put up in many points at once, it was hard to meet all the attacks. 
and at night constant watch had to be kept at all points for fear some party would erect a ladder and steal upon some unguarded portion of the wall great moving towers built of wood and higher than the walls meant to be rolled up directly against the defences were as we have seen much used in the old roman sieges they were often many stories in height and had big bridges drawn up against the front with hinges at the lower ends when they were close enough heavy volleys would clear the walls of defenders the bridges would be dropped and knights or soldiers could march across as alexander's men did at the siege of tyre the towers needed a smooth level road to the walls and were of such enormous weight that the path for their advance had to be solid where they might sink in and upset or remain immovable sometimes too they could be battered to pieces by heavy stones flung from machines or they might be set on fire as was so often done when titus was trying to take jerusalem as to artillery before the invention of gunpowder we have already told something but it may be well to divide the different kinds into classes those that threw the biggest stones were called mangonels or mangons from a greek word meaning a trick or machine the mangonel consisted of a long timber put between heavy ropes fastened between upright posts when the timber was pulled back the ropes were twisted and then the timber being let go it flew over so as to fling anything put upon its end high upward and forward it did not always shoot with the same force or accuracy but could throw heavy beams stones or barrels and pots filled with burning pitch could batter big walls or by lucky hits could disable the engines of an enemy the catapult and the trebuchet worked in a similar way in later times after the year 1100 weights were sometimes used instead of twisted ropes as in the earliest forms the ballista was a big bow worked by machinery it shot darts arrows and beams and could be aimed straight at the object in fact the ballista was a big crossbow and it is believed that the crossbow was only the ballista made small enough to be carried by the soldier the use of these terms is as has been said mixed up and uncertain some writers used one some another for the same machine but the general plans of them all were these two the big beam throwing things by hurling them in a long curve upward and the big bow that shot bolts or darts in a nearly straight line end of section fourteen Recording by Colleen McMahon